Hello and welcome to Complexity Unpacked with Professor Gonsalves. This is the second interview in my Profiles in Policing series. And today I have the pleasure of talking to John Romain. John has been a 30-year police officer with Toronto Police and he's recently retired. And he has been gracious enough to give us his time and share his perspective on his journey. So John, welcome to Complexity Unpacked. Uh, as I had mentioned to you, my podcast is primarily directed towards my students, both past and present all of whom have an aspiration to be police officers uh, someday or in law enforcement someday. And so the whole idea of this is to have open dialogues and share some perspectives from people that have been there and done that. So welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you, Neil, for having me. And I'm uh, happy to be here and hopefully I can share some insight with regards to my 30 years with the Toronto Police and how that came about and the uh, the uh, incidents that I was uh, connected to and all of the, uh, the good things that I was able to do in my career as a police officer. That's awesome. Well, I know you've recently retired, so 30 years came to an end for you in 2019. How's life and retirement been? 30 years went by like that. And uh, a retirement uh, for me was just a, a conversion, a, a switch from working for the Toronto Police now, now work for another law enforcement agency. So my retirement uh, span, uh, well, I, I actually, last day with the Toronto Police was, uh, it must have been January 24th right. of 20, uh, 2019. And my first day with the, the new organization was uh, January 27th of 2019. Yeah. So you're not quite ready to take up golf yet and just shut it down? Not quite ready to take up golf yet. There's still lots of uh, interesting things to do and see and participate in. Law enforcement is a great career, and it gives you an opportunity to see things that uh, a lot of people will never have the opportunity right. to see. Right. Well, I know that you're also a very business-minded guy, and you've always had a focus on teaching and learning. So do you want to share with my listeners uh, and my viewers, some of the things you're doing with Infinity Human Resource Group? Infinity Human Resource Group is uh, uh, my, my little baby, so to speak. And uh, we have gotten heavily into the development of online learning, uh, particularly with the pandemic. Uh, individuals, organizations have come to realize the benefits that can be had with a well-constructed, a well thought out online learning program. As long as you are putting together professional materials and it is engaging and interesting to the learner and it meets their needs, it is a fantastic way to do almost all types of learnings. You can get a master's online. So if you can do that, you can pretty much do almost anything from an online format. Uh, there does have to be a little bit of self-efficacy in that mm. the individual taking that online program needs to be able to get themselves going and action what needs to be actioned. But once you got that down, you are off to the races. And, and it's not just uh, professional development you do. You're also doing some things that young people would really find useful in getting their first jobs, right? You're doing some work with the security guard, uh, basic legislation. All of that's on yeah. your website. Yeah, we also uh, provide uh, the 40-hour uh, course in an online format. It includes everything except for emergency first aid. Right. And so far, we've had uh, 
got nearly 5,000 students through. And uh, we have a 95% success rate. And uh, 95% four stars or above rate, which is, uh, which is good. The only thing that uh, takes away from that is that there are certain individuals that uh, really were not meant to do online training. And that's because either they don't have the computer skills or the equipment that they're using isn't up to snuff up to speed, or they just don't read. And one of the things with regards to doing things online is that you actually have to read what is there on the screen in front of you and not just skip ahead. It's like uh, doing IKEA furniture. Sure. You're going to have a much better time if you take a look at those instructions first than right. trying to just put it all together and then wonder, hey, what are all those extra pieces for? Yeah, fair enough. Well, I'll tell you what, for everybody watching, I'm going to put a link to uh, John's video, uh, sorry, John's website in the description. So look below for uh, a link to his website and look, look at some of his resources. But John, I'm going to be a little bit selfish. I did bring you on here for profiles in policing. So I'm going to bring you back to your police care career. Uh, I know that a couple of the major things you did while you were on the service with Toronto was you spent a fair bit of time in education there, teaching at the Toronto College. Uh, as well as uh, you were a member of the Tavis unit. So mm -hmm. why don't we start with, tell me a little bit about Toronto Police College, how that fits in with Elmer and everything else, and what were you doing there? So I, uh, I actually started at uh, the Toronto Police College, working there in 1993, which is uh, about three years after I got on the service as a use of force instructor. That was when use of force training was coming to the forefront and the Ontario Police College that put together a program so that all police officers in Ontario would be properly trained in use of force and that's their firearms, uh, communication conflict management skills, handcuffing, baton, and empty hand techniques. And so I did that for approximately three years as a use of force facilitator. And then I transitioned from the use of force training aspect of things to the defensive tactics training aspect. And in use of force, it was done as a distributed learning environment in that each of the individual districts had their own location that they could send their police officers to get trained and to make sure that they had their appropriate use of force training. Moving from use of force to defensive tactics, that was actually run at the Toronto Police College, the CO Bick College on Pinch Avenue at Brimley Road. And there we trained recruits. Uh, in the time that I was there from 96 to, uh, I guess, 99, we put through, God, almost 1,500 officers. It was a, it was a huge push to get uh, our numbers back up. Right. And uh, it was a great time. We, uh, we, we had a lot of fun. We developed a lot of programs. We uh, developed programs on high-risk vehicle stops. We did stuff on conflict management and uh, crisis resolution. We worked with uh, the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Uh, Dr. Peter Collins was one of our consultants back then with regards to developing uh, things that officers could utilize to actually uh, de-escalate situations. And for those people that... And for those people that don't really know, where does Toronto Police College fit in sort of the model? So Elmer deals with police officers right across this province. I'm assuming, for the purposes of my listeners, 
that once they come back, the Toronto Police College has a little bit more of a local focus. They're they're looking at Toronto's needs specifically. Is that the purpose behind localized training after the standardized session? So the Toronto Police College uh, is now in the West End on uh, Birmingham, 70 Birmingham. And its current focus is delivery of in-house training and delivery of Ontario Police College certified courses for the Toronto Police Service, as well as other police services that come to participate in those specific courses. Uh, the history of the Toronto Police College is that there was a period of time when, as a police officer, you would start out at the Toronto Police College, you would get the basics with regards to what the Toronto Police Service at the time wanted you to have, and then you would go to Elmer for your part one. Okay. You would then come back from the part one and you would have further training from the Toronto police. And then you would be sent out to the division that you were going to be doing your field training at. Right. Once the field training was done, then you would go back a little while later to the uh, Terra Police College for your part two. And then you would okay. come back. And then ongoing training would be uh, given to you depending on what your specific focus was, uh, whether it was uh, being a detective, uh, sexual assaults, uh, crime scene management, whatever it was, you would get that training either at the Toronto Police College if we had the accreditation to deliver that program, right. or it would be delivered at the Ontario Police College. So there's always been a intimate relationship between the Toronto Police College Right. Whether it was in Scarborough or out in the West End right. and the Ontario Police College. The Ontario Police College is responsible for all training and accreditation of all training. And then sometimes Toronto Police will take the stuff over and deliver it in-house. Well, that's interesting. So tell me, what, what was it about education or educating that kept you sort of, what is it about educating that really draws you in? Because that seems to be a big focus of your work. Yeah, most of my career, like I said, I got on in 89. I went to uh, 55 Division down in uh, Coxwell and Dundas, started in 90. And then in 93, an opportunity arose that allowed me to join the, uh, the, the use of force trainers that were going to be delivering use of force training to the Grand Police Service. And that actually stemmed from... My, uh, my staff sergeant at the time, who was a great guy, his name is Dave Marks, one of the most incredible people that I have ever met in my life. He, when I got to 55 Division, he took myself and the other new recruits under his wing and gave us the direction that we needed and allowed us to grow and go in directions that were specific to our strengths and Without him, I don't think I would have grabbed that educational piece and been able to make that transition to the Toronto Police College as a use of force instructor. Uh, I enjoy uh, martial arts. I have a black belt in jiu-jitsu. And so at the time, I was heavily involved in that. And part of use of force training was training individuals in empty hand techniques. So that dovetailed really well at the time with what I was doing personally. Right. And 
along with that, uh, we, uh, we were doing a lot of firearms training. So I was starting to get into firearms training at the time. And I had actually bought my own, uh, uh, Ruger, Ruger, uh, pistol. And, uh, <laughs> I, I was out at the range and I was doing a lot of shooting at the time. So, uh, the opportunity to do that on a regular basis, to get my skills up, uh, we were given the opportunity to do a lot of training right. to build our skills. And then we were provided with, uh, uh, a St. Francis Xavier adult education program that helped us with regards to delivering appropriate training to the individuals who we were actually responsible for. Okay. And uh, in doing that, I found that I really enjoyed sharing information with individuals and seeing them see what I need them to see, the light goes on in their eyes, and then, hey, I understand. I know why this is done this way, and I know the importance of it all. And uh, while working at the police college in that uh, transition, I ended up working with a, a, a number of really interesting and uh, dedicated individuals, one of whom, uh, uh, Darren Smith, who was a, a fantastic educator at the time. And he was part of that St. Francis Xavier program. And uh, he was developing computer-based learning back in... 96, 97. So this is like way before the internet sure. and the stuff that we was doing at the time with regards to video and with regards to branching, uh, it was all CD-ROM based, but right. it was groundbreaking. And that's what actually started me in that whole process to uh, uh, deliver online training and where I am now. So those are the early years. And, uh, you know, I appreciate that. It, it does lend the groundwork for sort of your personality and the things that interested you. Uh, mm -hmm. We're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about the units you were in in your later years. So stay All right, welcome back. We're here with John Romain, and we were discussing his early career just a few minutes ago. And now we're going to look a little bit about uh, a little later down in his career. So, uh, John, I know you were a member of the Tavis unit that, for those people that don't know, is the Toronto Anti-Violence Strategy um, Unit. And Toronto, it was yeah, Toronto Anti-Violence Intervention Strategy. Intervention Strategy. And it was formed in response to a rash of gun violence in the city. It was a proactive measure. Uh, yeah. is is the general understanding. Uh, I know the unit was formed in 2006. What year did you join that unit? Uh, the the unit actually, it was, it was kind of formed in 2006, but it didn't actually come together until 2007. Okay. And uh, I was one of the first supervisors of, uh, of Tavis. Uh, there were two supervisors on my team. And then we had uh, another couple of teams that were supervised by another couple of individuals. So I was one of the original Tavis members. And our mandate was to go out there 
and to uh, interdict individuals who were shooting up the city of Toronto and killing people. Right. So did you volunteer for the unit or was it an assignment that was given to you? Uh, I, was asked if I, I was asked if I, if I would have liked to have participated. At the time, I was a, a, a supervisor, a sergeant at 33 Division. Okay. And uh, uh, yeah, they, they asked and I said, yeah, I, I would most likely want to be involved in that kind of thing and okay. uh, helping to keep the city safer. So, so tell me, um, give me a sense. Uh, this is sort of the, at whatever point it was originally envisioned, but once it starts rolling out, they're putting the team together. What's the atmosphere like? What are, what are the officers uh, and you sort of anticipating going out? Tush, can you share with me the perceptions at the time? Uh, th there was no real anticipation going out. We were supposed to be interdicting individuals in high-risk areas and areas where there were a lot of shootings there were a lot of street robberies uh there was a high incidence of drug dealing and that type of thing uh and that would be individual places such as uh, regent park jamestown uh places where there was a high incidence of crime so we weren't going to forest hill we weren't going to post road. We were going to places where there was individuals who were uh, committing crime sure. and it was street level crime. It wasn't, you know, right. white collar crime or anything like that. Right. It was individuals who were carrying guns and who had no qualms with regards to shooting people. Right. And so the strategy in for for people that aren't familiar with it. The strategy in general was to have a stronger police presence in neighborhoods where we were having problems yes, uh, and to deal with it in a proactive sense. Would that be a fair characterization? That would be a very fair characterization. And uh, we would get uh, information from our intelligence services with regards to uh, gang activity and shootings in particular areas. And so we would have, uh, I think on the team, it was between 10 and 14 individuals. And we were then to go out to various areas within the city and proactively police. Right. And proactive policing was to approach people, talk to them, and uh, make sure that... Uh, you know, we were trying to keep the uh, the area as safe as possible. So and this is that. Uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no go I was going to. I was just going to say, as far as when you talk about proactive and a visible sort of um, presence out there, we're talking about on your feet, out of the cars, in out the of the community. car, in the neighborhood, and, right. and the interesting thing when you have eight to ten police officers in a particular area. People come out and say, what the hell is going on? Why are all these police officers here? If something's happening, something has to be happening. Right. And what we were trying to do with that initial aspect of Tavis thing was to just go out there and talk to people and say, hey, you know, we're here. You know, right. there's been an, a, a rash of shootings in the area. Right. There has been a lot of calls because people in the community are scared. They feel that they're being inundated by gang members and criminals and that kind of thing. So we are going to be in your neighborhood for the next little while trying to have a higher police presence right. with regards to 
what's going on at this particular time. And then we would move on to the next hot spot, so to speak, right. and uh, try to do the same thing there. So, you know, I mean, in essence, data-driven policing, right? Looking at yes. where the trouble is and trying yep. to be proactive about where you deploy your limited resources. Exactly. I, uh, I don't want to tip my own biases here. So let me, let me phrase the question this way. Uh, once you're out there and that initial uh, sort of shock dissipates, why are all of you out there? Tell me a little bit about the community response, because at the end of the day, a lot of people in a community are the ones that truly feel the going ons in that community. So when they have fear, when they have fear, as you talked about, they are being precluded from enjoying their communities, their life. They're not able to move around freely because of everything else going on. So can you talk to me a little bit about the community response once they understood what you were doing there? Uh, The community response was generally good. Uh, the times that we had any issues were with regards to uh, some individuals feeling over-policed. Okay. And part of that was uh, there were uh, situations and times when uh, some members of Tavis did not use their training, so to speak, to talk to people in a civil manner and ensure that they were actually uh, having the best interaction that they could have. And uh, just like with anything else, uh, some people aren't the best communicators. And sometimes with that lack of communication skills, uh, interactions wouldn't go as well as they should have. And generally, we were doing good in the community Mm -hmm. but it did get to a point where uh and particularly i I think it was with regards to uh our 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 stopping people and getting their information and writing it down on a card and that became a little problematic because it wasn't necessarily about having a good interaction it was about writing a name down right and so we started going down that path a little bit. And I think that though Tavis was there to, you know, help the community, right. it was having a little bit of a detrimental effect because of the way some individuals were approaching community members and right. just taking people's names down for whatever right. reason. And I, what I, you're I alluding to, sorry, what you're alluding to is the whole conversation that has come out regarding carding. And that has been an ongoing conversation. Um, But really, I know some have characterized it this way. And tell me if I'm being fair in my representation. Uh, In speaking with a lot of police officers, there's generally a sense that a very small segment of a a force, a unit, a service, a population, if you will, uh, do things. And those things sort of tend to reflect everybody. And that can be detrimental to the overall mission. Is that a fair characterization or is that a biased statement? It it was a very small number of individuals who may have been doing things that weren't as uh, community friendly as they should have been. But just like anywhere else, if you have a pool and you put a tiny bit of oil in it, then you've tainted that entire pool. It doesn't take a lot. And suddenly, you know, things are going wrong and they're inappropriate and uh we had good supervision i remember one incident where uh, an individual had stopped somebody 
And uh, I came over to see what was going on. And, you know, why did you stop this person? Well, the response was, well, look at him. And I said, well, what? Look at who? Uh, I need an actual reason. Right. Something that this person has done for him to be stopped. And, well, look at him really isn't the reason. So, you know, we had a discussion with regards to, you know, future stops and what should be happening. And the, the, the strength of your supervision is going to be what determines how successful your, uh, your program is going to be for a, a good part of, of what's going on. In, in, in relation to the whole carding aspect of things, uh, the interactions and the problem with that is that the communication and the way that things were being done uh, mm -hmm. seemed very random and exactly. without purpose. And that is detrimental to what was trying to be achieved. Fine. There, if you have information, if you have people calling you and giving you backgrounds with regards to areas and individuals, descriptions, and this is what we're seeing, then it provides you with that foundation and that ability to go into a location and say, hey, you know what, we just got a call and an individual said that they saw this, this, and this. And based on the information that you get, you're going right. to have to discern, okay, they said that they saw this particular thing. Is that something that's illegal? Well, maybe it's not. Maybe they just want to call the police on somebody and uh, right. there's nothing that we can actually do. Sure. So, so, so let me stop you there because I, I, you know, I think you're bringing up some really good points, but here's, I think, the struggle. So give some context to this. There, you know, at, on the one hand, when you have intelligence and you're looking for something in particular, in some ways you're reacting rather than being proactive. And when you're trying to be proactive, you're trying to get out there and start conversations and build well, relationships. Sure. What is the, they, uh, they, there the is challenge? There is an inter, intersection of those two things in that you need the intelligence to know the areas that you need to be going into. Right. And while you're in that area, you need to be engaging with the community and it needs to be a good engagement. There are lots of fantastic people in these communities, right? but you need to be able to connect with them and bring them on board to what you are doing and right. how things are actually being done. And they have to be able to see that you being there is a positive thing for right. them and their entire community. You know, it's it's interesting. One of the comments I make in class all the time is a lot of what law enforcement aim to do is build public trust because the legitimacy to police and the capacity to police is in many ways dependent on public trust. You need it, people it, to it, trust it, you. It, it's right? the foundation. The foundation of everything that you do is based on your trust that the community gives you. And, and, you know, I think the other side of that coin is that trust is not freely given. It has to be earned and uh, on both sides, the public and the police. And there's an element of being trustworthy. Can you speak to the importance of being trustworthy? You, you're not just expecting the public to trust you, but speak to for my new officers or the, my aspiring police officers. What does it mean to be trustworthy to you? Uh, to me, it means that you are going to be an individual that 
the people around you, the community can trust in you that you are going to do the right thing in each and every situation and each and every interaction that you have with a community member. And if they cannot trust in you that you are going to be able to do the right thing through your training, through the integrity that you have, through the professionalism that you have, then that trust that the community has in you, and it doesn't take much to have that trust obliterated, right? is going to disappear. Well, I think the funny thing is we always say this, right? It takes years and lots of interactions to build trust. It doesn't take a lot to lose it. So, you know, no. it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult situation to be in. So as you know, uh, in the media, in, academ in academia, throughout the, the TV, uh, the Tavis was heavily scrutinized and sort of heavily sort of criticized for being a little heavy handed in racialized communities. Um, but the other side of that conversation is that there are significant reports that say you'll accomplish some things. You'll took a lot of guns off the road. You took cash and proceeds of crime off the road. Oh, crime rates it, were, it, so talk it to was, me about that. It, it was, it was interesting because we found that a lot of the people that we stopped, we took a lot of guns off the street. A lot of people were actually carrying firearms at the, at the inception of Tavis. And so a lot of the people that we stopped, uh, they were armed. And what, tended, what started to happen as Tavis went along is that the people that we stopped didn't carry their guns anymore because they were afraid of being stopped and in possession of firearms. I remember we had gone to a, uh, a restaurant on, on, uh, on Spadina. And we'd gone into the back of this restaurant and we were talking, I was talking to the, uh, the, the manager and a couple of my officers were talking to another individual who was in the back and a, 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 an interaction happened and there was a fight between this individual and four of my officers. Uh, the fight continued, the individual was taken to the ground and he had his hands underneath his body. And mm -hmm. myself, four other officers, we're trying to gain control of this individual and we're telling him, take your hands out from under your body, take your hands out from under your body. And uh, we finally pull his arms out and he's got a revolver in his hand with five police officers on top of him. So this is a 19 year old young man right. and he has a gun and mm -hmm. he is willing to pull it while police officers are on top of him. So that is the kind of stuff that we were dealing with at the time. And Tavis did have an effect with regards to people carrying their guns, but that effect was kind of offset by the toxicity, so to speak, of the way that some people were being treated and stopped. And if the officers were able to articulate better, to communicate better, and had more community support and, and that piece. And it wasn't so much a, hey, let's get names and numbers for this carding thing. And so we write people's names down that we've had an interaction with them. Well, nobody wants that. No. We want to stop the people that are shooting the place up. We want to make sure that the people that are living in these communities mm -hmm. are going to be able to go out and walk the streets right. at night. And okay. not worry about being shot or robbed or assaulted mm -hmm. or any of these things. So on a balance, 
what you know looking back so since then uh, tavis has been disbanded i mean the funding was cut initially and then it was sort of collapsed uh, in in its sense and i know that this is an everyday part of policing you're doing this every day regardless of whether you have a unit specialized or not but looking back now all these years later so we've identified some positives and we've identified some areas where things didn't go so well do you think overall tavis was a success where would you rate it and i guess i'm leading to a question which is if you had to go back again would you want to be a part of this unit tavis ended up not necessarily being a success initially we were taking a lot of guns off the street and we were interdicting a lot of people a lot of the people that we ended up uh uh speaking to were actually previously on charges for for whatever reason and it got to the point where we actually did a or or, or came up with a subunit within Tavis that was responsible for doing offender checks and so an offender check was an individual who uh had been charged with a firearms offense uh with a uh, uh a homicide or something along those lines and they had restrictions as to you know where they were supposed to be at a particular time and so we would go and check to make sure that these individuals because it's not a whole lot of people that are causing the problems in the city it's a very small number of people that are willing to carry guns and have no compunction with regards to using them in any situation at any time right to achieve their ends so and just we introduced for my we listeners tried, sorry yeah. carry on no finish your finish your thought go ahead we 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 specifically started targeting these individuals right and keeping them at home letting them know that we were watching them and that uh because you have a court order saying that you have to be at this particular location between the hours of this and that Uh, we would go to that location at that time and there was uh, a number of times when individuals that should have been there were not and once again these were the individuals that were causing the majority of the problems sure so i have a couple of listeners that are not from canada so uh, <clears throat> just in looking at the uh, the analytics so we've got a couple of people internationally and some down in the united states so just can we contextualize a little bit we have very different uh, gun laws here in terms of you know public uh, private citizens uh, we don't have open carry permits we don't have carry permits necessarily unless they are can you speak a little bit about how our gun laws sort of work so how does a private citizen how do we get into this whole conversation around guns uh, what is the restrictions that our citizens face could you share briefly well, you you have to take a course you have to have a uh, an acquisition certificate and then you have to be able to transport your gun you will get a certificate to transport your gun from one location to another location which is generally from your home to a a a range or some place to, to do target practicing uh the 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 firearm has to be stored uh appropriately and i'm talking about handguns restricted weapons more than long rifles or or that kind of thing although they do also have to be stored appropriately they have to be transported appropriately and you do have to have certification for them mm-hmm. and the individuals that we were dealing with uh, they they didn't have any of that kind of stuff because they had illegal handguns and they were using them to cause mayhem fair enough Listen, we uh, there's so much to say on the subject. I one of the things that is very hard for many of my students to wrap their mind around is finding that balance between being a good member of the community, 
and you know inevitably causing people discomfort um i'm going to end this sort of segment here because there's so much we could probably say uh but what advice would you have for young students who are aspiring to be police officers that look at some of these challenges there are so much criticism of police in the media that it can sometimes be discouraging for them when i talk to them in class so what would you say to them they are aspiring to be out there but they're hearing a lot of critique uh what what, what would you share Policing is a fantastic career and it is one of the few places where you can actually make a difference, a significant difference in people's lives. You deliver compassionate messages. You uh, do first aid. You do emergency runs. You are there to support the members of the community in their times of need. Right. So it is a fantastic profession in that light. And what you need to realize with regards to policing at this point in time is that it is scrutinized to the nth degree. But that's not a bad thing. It okay. is one of those professions that you need to know your stuff. You need to follow your training. You need to think on your feet and you need to practice the things that are going to help make your interactions successful with your peers, with your community, and with everybody else that you are dealing with. And if you can do that, and you know the laws and your authorities, then you're going to have a good time and you're going to have a fantastic impact on your community. And it's going to provide you with a sense of satisfaction in being able to help and being able to serve your community and get it where it needs to be. Wow. John, thank you so much for your time. I love the city of Toronto. It's where I run away to every time I want to have an evening out. It is uh, where I can eat at all times of the night. And, uh, you know, I think I'm a city guy at heart. Well, thanks, John. I really appreciate your time and your candor. Uh, It's good to have you here. I hope you'll come back and chat with me again. Thank you so very much. It was great to be out here with you. And uh, good luck with the the podcast. And uh, All the things that uh, we can get done in policing uh, are fantastic. And it helps to support our communities and make sure that uh, everybody's safe and feeling good. Thank you, John. All right. Have a good one. For everybody, check out my podcasts. They are available on Apple, on Spotify, and on Anchor. And it's on my website at www.nganselvis.ca. Thanks for your support as always.